This is Observations Q&O Podcast for Friday, the 19th of November, 2021. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dale Franks. And I'm Bruce McQuinn. And I think I should start off today uh, by uh, introducing us to a uh, legal case that was decided today. Uh, A young man charged with murder, acquitted by a jury off those murder charges. Um, I'm speaking, of course, about Andrew A.J. Coffey, who in 2017 (laughs) got into a gunfight with Florida sheriff's deputies who were serving a no-knock warrant at his home. They uh, announced their presence by sticking a pole through his bedroom window with a flashbang on it. He thought he was under fire. He opened fire on the deputies. A gunfight ensued, during which his young 21-year-old girlfriend um, was killed uh, by sheriff's deputies, who returned fire immediately, of course. And today, he was acquitted after a gunfight with the police and, you know, gunfighting with the police while being black. Let's point that out. Um Acquitted by the jury. Now, in his case, he happened to be a four-time felon who was not authorized to have a firearm. So he's looking at 30 years in in a Florida prison on a firearms charge. But he was acquitted of all of the the second-degree felony murder, three counts of attempted first-degree murder of a law enforcement officer by discharging a firearm, and one count of shooting or throwing a deadly missile. But after the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, acquittal today, I was reliably informed by everyone that if Kyle Rittenhouse had been black, he would have been killed by the cops and certainly would have been convicted. Interesting, though, that these two acquittals come on the same day. Yeah, it is. And and who else has heard of uh, Mr. Coffey but, you know, a few of the Twitterati uh, on the right who have been more and libertarians who have been more than happy to point it, point out that, uh, yeah, he, he got off on all of those because, well, he, uh, he was the victim of a no knock search. Yeah. He got woken up in the middle of the night, bang. Well, he thinks he's under attack. He fires and guess what? He gets to walk off of that. Now, obviously the 30 years on the firearm charge, that doesn't go away, but still in all, it does tend to put the lie to this case that, you know, had, had, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse been black, the entire court system would have turned against him. In this case, we have an African-American known felon who, while a warrant was being served on his address, opened fire on the police, um, starting a gunfight in which a woman was killed, and he gets to walk. Yeah, and, and uh, by the way, his girlfriend was shot 10 times by the SWAT team. Yes. I mean, my and of course, God. the SWAT team blames him. Well, you know, if he'd have just complied, well, yeah, flashbang on a pole through your window. Yeah, you know, it's the SWAT team, don't you? Yeah. How about if you weren't giving no knock violent warrants in the middle of the night? Uh, maybe none of this would have occurred. That's exactly right. It's it's not like he's That's not going to exactly walk right. out of his house. Yep. And meanwhile, up in uh, good old Kenosha. Uh, I, you know, I've seen a lot of things today. We don't hold anybody accountable. Well, you know, I hate to say this to you folks, but that was the accountability process. Yes. That's he was... why he went to court. That's what they were going to do is if they found him guilty, they were going to hold him accountable. 
And since they couldn't find him guilty, the accountability was he walks. And, yeah. you know, so. <laughs> I mean, there was a trial and everything. It was in all yeah, the papers. Gee. And on all the TVs. Well, but uh, we've watched we watched progressive heads explode everywhere. And and what they're trying to do, the, the, the line they're throwing out there is, well, this means that anyone can pick up a an assault weapon and go to a protest and begin shooting people and walk away. Yeah, it means yeah, no, no such it thing. It doesn't mean that at all. My favorite. And quit acting like it does. This is, this is the typical gaslighting that's been going on for this whole thing. Oh, no, it gets worse. Sean Patrick Maloney, who is the chairman of the DCCC, uh, for the Democrats, uh, wrote, It is disgusting and disturbing that someone was able to carry a loaded assault rifle into a protest against the unjust killing of Jacob Blake, an unarmed black man, and I'm not even going to finish that sentence. Because Jacob Blake was neither unarmed, nor was he killed. Jacob Blake is alive today. But and he's facing charges <laughs> for having a knife and going after officers. Exactly. Um but th- th- at some point, you know, I, I uh, over the last couple of years, I have slowly moved away from the thinking that, you know, a lot of these people are just dumb. They're just dumb and they're stupid and they're uninformed and they just don't know stuff. But seeing this from, from Sean Maloney and other things that have happened over the last two years, I, I just don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that anybody can be this stupid. I don't believe anybody can be this uninformed. This is either willful ignorance or this is just outright lying. Oh, it's just pure dishonesty. I mean, if you're going to make a remark about something, at least inform yourself. And none of, most of these people, you can read what they write. And if you spent even a little bit of attention to the to to uh, what's going on with, with the uh, trial, you know damn well they haven't. They have done nothing but pick up a few talking points from the media uh, that also has woefully un- you know misinformed the public, and uh, that's what they've marched with it. And they still many of them still believe that to be the truth. Others are just ignoring what's come out as you know got to be right wing trash. And uh, they are convinced that the narrative that the media put out there to begin with is the way this this thing went, and this has somehow been a travesty of justice. Well, the yesterday Barry Weiss um, wrote an <laughs> article, and she said, "Look, I I I I just don't see how so many reporters have gotten the story wrong." And I responded, and actually. My response kind of went viral on Twitter. Uh, basically, I don't understand why they keep saying, well, they're just getting the story wrong. They're not getting the story wrong. They're telling exactly the story, precisely the story they wish to tell. They're selling something. There's an audience for what they're selling. They aren't news outlets. They're propaganda shops. They have a demographic. They know what that demographic wants to hear, and they're intentionally telling them what that demographic wants to hear. There's no way that you can have this sort of reporting coming out that so egregiously um, misstates what is going on in that courtroom without having an agenda. There's there's just no way that you're dumb enough to write those stories. Uh, even Variety yesterday wrote a story about the, the MSNBC sent a guy out chasing after the jurors, apparently trying to get their license plates so they could, they said, contact them after the trial was over. 
and by the way, how are you going to contact somebody with license plates? You're not cops. You're not supposed to have uh, the ability to look up somebody through a registration search. But let's elide past that. Um, <laughs> and But he, he was chasing the jurors down. The judge threw MSNBC and NBC out of the courtroom uh, because he just said that was just an egregious violation of, of the, the jury's privacy. And Variety reported it as NBC reporter thrown out of courtroom after traffic citations. Lord. Now, it takes a certain type of talent. And I said this to Michael last week. It just takes a certain amount of talent that that is, at least on, on some level, admirable to be able to write a headline that is entirely true, that is factually correct, and yet manages to completely avoid or even subvert the actual substance of the story. At some point, we're yeah. no longer talking about mistakes. We're not talking about stupidity. No, and I, we're talking and, about and malevolence. That's the point. This has been pointed during this trial, uh, which has gone on for weeks. This this has been pointed out many, many times. The, the, the fallacies that they have been pushing have been pointed out, at, you know, in the courtroom for God's sake, and, and in many other places, many, many times. Yet. That they continue to push exactly the same narrative. Uh, the white supremacy thing is—they double down. The white supremacy thing. Uh, uh, well, my God, he went to a bar. He uh, apparently did the OK sign, and there were some proud boys in there. Uh, and the judge, you know, when 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 uh, the prosecutor pointed that out, he said, "It's four weeks after the event, for God's sake." <laughs> It has nothing to do with any, you know, the trial. It has nothing to do with anything. He's not going to let that be in there. Uh, <laughs> they've, they've scrubbed his social media. I mean, they have gone through everything the kid has ever written since, you know, he was able to punch a keyboard. Uh, they found nothing but the fact that the kid is a, a, a pro cop, you know, back to blue. He, he's a, he is a cadet fireman. He was a cadet policeman. Uh, you know, this is not some white supremacist yet today in tweet after tweet after tweet from the left, white supremacy, uh, from the squad, you know, the, the same crap that you always hear. This is all propaganda now. Yeah. And, um, by the way, there are perhaps legal consequences for that type of propaganda. You can't willfully misreport this kind of stuff and then and push this like he's a white supremacist. Okay, that's just black letter defamatory right there. Yeah, um, it is. And and I saw a humorous headline for the Babylon <laughs> Bee today, which I is Nicholas too. Sandman and Kyle Rittenhouse agree to <laughs> joint custody of CNN. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I, there are a lot of people encouraging him to do exactly that. And then there's Joe Biden, who too uh, has a, uh, put out an actionable tweet, you know, when he called him a white supremacist. Uh, so, you know, you know, obviously they won't go after him while he's president, but he did that before he was president and he was a candidate. So he's uh, it's still actionable afterwards. Yeah. Well, uh, also, and I hope speaking you, of, speaking of presidents, stop this. by the way, speaking of presidents, yeah. Joe Biden turned over the reins to Kamala Harris as acting president. And so yes, now indeed. Kamala Harris, the, the, the most important event of her presidential administration was Kyle Rittenhouse's acquittal. That's exactly right. It's hers. <laughs> yep. I, 
but but I, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, Joe Biden uh, got a clean bill of health today. Uh, they said, man, he is fit for duty. No cognitive problems that they could tell. Holy shit, here's his doc. I don't know whether I'm more frightened by the idea that he has severe cognitive issues or by the idea that he has none at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, well, this, this administration has been blowing smoke since January 20th, so I don't know why we should think a, a damn physical would be any different. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much I trust that doctor's... Uh public release I'm not even, of that information i'm not even i was gonna say i'm not even sure that's what the doctor said but anyway yes but that's certainly what we've been told but we've been told a that's lot right. of stuff over the past couple of years and certainly over the past nine months yes yes you know it turns out we were talking about you know they were talking about you know well we're gonna have to release a strategic petroleum reserve you know, to bring down prices and stuff. And I, I guess it came out a couple of days ago that we've already been reducing the strategic petroleum reserve by selling it off to Asia. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're a net exporter, but it, you know, it reminds me of a friend, a guy I met, a Cuban, who told me about after he and his family escaped from Cuba, they went to Mexico. And when he went into the grocery stores in Mexico, he'd look at all the fruit and stuff, and it was all from Cuba. Hell, we couldn't get it, he says, <laughs> but Mexicans were enjoying the hell out of it. By the way, Michael, who can't yeah. be with us tonight, is apparently uh, at least able to uh, listen in because he just texted me, uh, and you too. He texted both of us. Note that a doctor mm. determined Biden's fitness after examining his ass. <laughs> True. That's probably exactly where he needed to look. <laughs> well, it's it's gonna. It was interesting to to just just to look at the difference between what was going on at the trial, which I did actually have playing off and on throughout the uh, the workday, and just watching how horribly the prosecution presented everything and how many prosecution witnesses actually turned out to be witnesses for the defense um, <laughs> and did not sing a, a clue of that or a hint of that in any of the reportage that was coming out. And, and for yeah. all the people who were surprised today, um, I, I guess I can uh, forgive you for being surprised because if you were listening to the news media about what was happening at that trial, you would have had no idea how badly the prosecution was screwing this up by the numbers. Yeah, when you have your your star witness uh, on cross uh, admit that he was holding a gun on the guy they're trying to prosecute uh, and he shot in self-defense, yeah, you kind of blown it. And that's exactly what happened. And this guy had a tendency, the, the prosecutor had a tendency to do what all good lawyers know they shouldn't do, and that is ask questions that you don't know the answer to. He asked a ton of them, and he got a lot of wrong answers he didn't expect. Yeah. Like, how, did you think he was angry? Why would you think that? Because he said, fuck you, and raised the gun? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. Well, well, I, oh, that. Oh, oh, that. Well, I mean, <laughs> other, other than Stash, that. Yeah. <laughs> God, this guy was, the guy was terrible. I mean, my God, he watched too many Perry Mason movies, and he was no Perry Mason. 
Yeah, it was just fun. But that uh, that prosecutor, Mr. Binger, he has a, a great future in uh, in uh, promoting uh, hair care products. Well, that and they can make him the new Hamilton Burger on the next Perry Mason show. He was just <laughs> yeah. terrible. Boy, he, he, poor Hamilton Burger. He never won a case. <laughs> <laughs> How did he ever get keep getting reelected as the as the DA? Well, it's hey, over now. Else. It's over now. He's yep. gone. He's going to walk and. I hope he's going to see the shit out of damn CNN and a bunch of others. Although, what I would prefer that he do, I mean, he's he's 18 years old. Matt Gaetz already said, hey, he can come to Congress and be an intern for me. Uh, He's apparently going on Tucker Carlson uh, tomorrow or Monday or Tuesday. Monday. Um, um, What he really should do is say no to all of these people who are going to want to use him as the bloody red flag that they can wave. And he should probably concentrate on just getting back to a normal life, going to school, trying to figure out what he wants to do and not give any of these grifters the time of day. Yeah. How many times have we seen over the years, someone like this, who's whose star shines bright and as soon as they're politically not useful anymore. Boom. You never hear from them of them again. And I'm afraid that's what's going to happen to him. He'll be a poster boy for a while, but you know, they'll, they'll, they'll use him up and throw him away. Yeah. Well, look, that's what they did with David Hogg and he's still now desperately trying to make himself relevant. Yes, he is. And I was trying to remember the the name I was trying to remember was the uh, anti-war mother who went after Bush so much, and as soon as Bush, uh, or as soon as they elected the next president, she was never heard from again. Yeah, we didn't need her unquestioned moral um, authority anymore, yeah. did we? Nope, she was gone. Speaking of gone, uh, uh, apparently the uh, Congress has finally taken off the Thanksgiving, or had the House has taken off the Thanksgiving because they passed that uh, travesty of a bill uh, the the social infrastructure bill, the build back build back better bill. Yeah, good luck with that. And well, and the and the thing here's the thing that got me about that. You remember that moderate Democrats in the House, you know, they claimed they didn't want to vote for it this yet because yeah, they wanted the CBO to score it and so, and verify that it wouldn't add to the deficit. Well, the CBO scored it. And by God, the CBO came back and said, "Boy, would it add to the deficit?" and what did the moderate Democrats do? They voted for it anyway. All, all, every one of them but one voted for this bill that will add to the deficit. So I think I think uh, they're in trouble in the Senate. I think Joe Manchin, they, they've screwed around with both Manchin and Cinema enough that I think both of them will go, yeah, stick this in your ass. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that as well. Um, and by the way, there's polling out of West Virginia and something like 73% approve of Joe Manchin's uh, rejection of that bill. Good. Yeah, he knows that's how he's going to stay alive in West Virginia. Yeah. And uh, I think they've hassled Kristen Cinema enough that she's just going to go, screw you people, and uh, be the second no vote. I don't think that's going anywhere, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, well, here's the, here's Unless, the thing about this bill, 
And, you know, you talked about the CBO doing the scoring. But the CBO scoring assumes that, you know, a decade hence, all of these things that are supposed to happen will happen. Because all of the spending in this bill is front-loaded. All of the payment right. for this bill comes after year five. And That's um, correct. you can believe as much of as much as you want about what payments are actually going to be made after year five. If anything, the CBO was wildly optimistic in looking at how much it would increase the deficit. Because I guarantee you, five years from now, that wouldn't be paid for at all. Certainly not if the Democrats no. are running it. No. And and loaded into this bill is uh, they, they uh, restart the SALT, which gives uh, the tax exemption, which gives the rich a huge tax break, when in fact, the whole point of this was to hire 80, some 80,000 IRS agents to go soak the rich. Yeah, uh, you know, th- th- this bill makes no sense. Well, it makes none here, whatsoever. and one of the things that Democrats have said that I've just found hilarious has been, well, you know, once we get these 86,000 agents, we'll be able to go after those tax cheats. Well, first of all, and, and we'll be able to get and they had some some ridiculous figure like 750 billion that we'll be able to get from these tax cheats. Um, that is entirely notional. First of all, um, are there tax cheats? If you knew there were tax cheats, you'd be getting their money now. So you're pretending well, that, that you know that there are tax cheats, and you're pretending you know how much those tax cheats owe, when in point of fact, you know neither of those things. Well, and they're, and they're not cheats. That, what they're after are people who are using loopholes, and they want to close the loopholes, and they want these freaking guys to identify where all this stuff is. And the bottom line is, no matter what they pass as you know tax law, uh, there are some very, very, very smart people out there going to figure out for the rich folks how to get around. It always works that way. We both know that. We all know that. And so if you think this th- that you're going to pick up X amount of dollars in 10 years in taxes, you're smoking dope. It's and, not going to happen. And by the way, this is the party that has been talking for 20 years now. Well, hell, since Reagan, 40 years now about tax cuts for the rich. Well, look, if you're increasing the salt cap uh, so mm-hmm. that rich people in high tax states like California and New York get a, a, a basically a tax cut, that is that is a tax cut that, that you know, a regular tax cut. You know, the the idea being you can't cut taxes for people who don't pay taxes, right? So pretty much half of the population doesn't really pay any income tax. So, or they pay such a marginal uh, amount of income tax, it doesn't matter. So the people who get tax cuts are the people who are actually paying the taxes. So that's obviously just the top 50% of the tax uh, earners. So you can make the argument based on that justification that it is a quote-unquote tax cut for the rich because, well, they're the ones that pay the, the, the lion's share of the taxes. But an increase in the salt cap doesn't get doesn't affect poor people. It doesn't affect the middle nope. class. The only people that it benefits are the very wealthy. And so that is a direct tax cut for the rich. From the same party that says that tax cuts are unfair because they cut taxes on the rich. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And don't forget, one of the big promises that uh, Joe Biden has made and continues to make is is that the the uh, the middle class, anyone under four hundred thousand dollars, won't see a uh, uh, an increase yet. 
when they take when this analysis has been done on this thing and they take into account all the major tax provisions, roughly 20 percent to 30 percent of middle income households would pay more taxes in 2022. Thank you, Joe Biden. So that's a lie, too. Yeah, but you know, he's going to get his money out of your six hundred dollar bank account or whatever. Yeah, but the, the difference between me and most people is I knew Joe Biden was lying the minute those words came out of his mouth. Oh, God, we've watched him lie for 40 some odd years, Dale. You know, it's hard to believe, guy, but yeah. This is the guy who would lie when the truth would be better. I mean, there's no question about it. He's, he's a disgusting person and has no business being where he is. Nope. And yet, here we are. Yeah. But well, I see that I see that uh, the the press uh, talked California and New York into riots over the Rittenhouse thing. That's good. Yeah, well, of course they were marching in in um, New York, uh, New York City before before the sun went down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to have this. You know, this is important stuff. Oh well. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was interested to, when they predicted where the four uh, hot spots were going to be. He said, uh, California, Portland, Seattle, and Chicago. And I thought, well, how in the hell will they know the difference in Chicago? You know? Yeah, it'll just be, yeah. you know, Friday. More shooting. <laughs> Actually, it'll probably be more peaceful in Chicago. But yeah, those four, indeed, that, what a surprise that those, those four pop, you know? Yeah, well, it's 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 happening in states where the the woke religion is strongest, and those well, other and, places, and the police protection is least, yeah, <laughs> weakest, if you will. I mean, that's that's the way it's always going to be. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I find it very interesting. I, I saw a, a surprising fifteen-minute video from the New York Times talking about how much worse it is in the liberal states if you're poor. And the right. whole thing was an indictment of the hypocrisy of liberal states. They have all of these these things that they talk about, about you know their policies and how they're going to help the middle class and help the worker. And every single policy they have, every single one of those states, California, um, Illinois, Chicago, New York, um, Washington, Oregon, they they do the worst jobs possible at implementing any of those poss any of those those policies uh the, the hypocrisy is amazing yeah it is and uh you, i remember that that article as well in fact there have been uh, a lot of people that have written uh and, and mostly on substack you, you pointed out uh oh what's your name uh the New York Times uh, uh, journalist that was kind of forced out that just wrote you. you oh, very wise. Mentioned her. Yes, very wise. I, I've seen a lot of of uh, people get loose of these these journalism organizations, get on Substack and that type thing, and start you know talking about things that just you know you knew was probably going on, but to have someone that was in that position say. Yes, indeed. This, I think the example that came out uh, today was the woman who wrote a story about Kenosha. Kenosha. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and what horrible damage it did and, and how these people were underinsured and how important their businesses were to them. And many and of the them black, by that, the way. Uh, yes. And, uh, and, uh, she submitted that and, uh, it sat and sat and it sat and finally an editor turned uh, turned to her and said, "Yeah, that's not going to run till after the election." And it did eventually run, but not when it could have made any impact. Yeah, because journalism. Mm. Because journalism. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm. I, I love. I love reading these uh, uh, folks that finally. Oh, I know there was another one. I can't think of his name. I'm, I'm, I'm out of names tonight, but he and his girlfriend sat up and watched the Rittenhouse thing from, you know, beginning to end. And he began putting tweets out saying, boy, you know what I've heard and what I'm seeing, this is that they're completely opposite. And it doesn't look like Rittenhouse is guilty. It looks like he acted in self-defense. <laughs> and finally, you heard from one of his friends and said, has your Twitter account been hacked? You know, it, it's... It, that that it, I wouldn't say it was a red pill, but it was a truth pill that hit this guy who's going, holy crap, everything I've been reading is BS. I like this. I like to see more and more of that. Yeah, what is the, what is the, uh, the there's actually an academic term for it where um, people who actually are involved in news stories look at the news coverage and realize oh. how flawed it is, but they automatically assume that every other story they see on the news is true. Yeah. Yeah, those days are gone. Don't believe anything you see on the news. And nobody, I, you know, I've gotten to the point where no, I don't. I mean, uh, when I put anything up on our, our Facebook page, I, I, I want to have read it in two or three other places. I, I, I want to see what CNN says and what Fox says and what uh, what Glenn Reynolds has found on Instafunded. You know, that type. Because I don't believe a damn thing. And especially the first, the first cut. First cut is usually reliably wrong yeah i think the rule is just don't say a damn thing for the first 24 hours yeah i think that's pretty much where you are now. i mean it's that bad and that's that's pretty horrible well the other thing i do and i know you do too is i look at the foreign press i look at the british press uh even even as biased as they are they have no reason in many cases to be biased about what goes on in the u.s and so they'll Throw stuff up and you go, whoa, I didn't read that. Where'd that come from? I never saw that before. Yeah, I mean, there's it's... there's better and more complete reporting on the United States coming from the UK or from Agence France Press or from yeah. Deutsche Welle, for cripe's sake, than there is anywhere the in the United Post. States. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. And so, and so when you check in with them, when you look and you go, that's not that changes the whole story. Why didn't why didn't the Washington Post or the New York Times or the LA Times say that? Because they didn't want to. And that is the right. that is and the that's fundamental problem. That, that's back to your point. We'll ignore it. We'll just pretend like it didn't happen because if it did happen, it changes the narrative. It messes the narrative up. The narrative is is the key. And then of course when it all turns out exactly the way that it should have turned out. Um, there's all the backfilling today. I think it was tonight. Chris Cuomo on CNN um, basically said, "Well, you know, Rittenhouse should have let um, Rosenbaum just catch him, and you know, self-defense is not really great. Uh, they should have just fought it out right then and there." Um, 
and he shouldn't have resisted at all. My okay, is that the society like, we want to live in, where 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 basically the aggressor gets the gets the vote on what what happens? Well, well, not only that, Dale. You tell me that Chris Cuomo would have done it. Yeah, well, there is no way Chris Cuomo would have gone. Yeah, go ahead, Pete. Yeah, I'll just I'll just take. I mean, and that, by just, the way, that's what the attorney there, uh, uh, the, the yeah, prosecutor attorney that's said. Yeah, You know, that's sometimes you just got to take a beating. No, actually, no. I don't. I never have to take no. a beating. Absolutely not. I have that's I right. have I have no obligation whatsoever to uh, avoid defending myself. That's precisely correct. And anyone and who argues uh, and anyone who argues otherwise is is arguing out of bad faith. Well, and they're a loon. I mean, nobody. Yeah, there's, you know, we all know about our fight or flight. But at the point where he was, he he had tried to fight. He was running. He was trying to get away. He had been cornered. And these people were descending on, you know, sequentially descending on him. And he had to fight. Uh, yeah, he could have laid there and taken a beating, and they might have killed his ass. I mean, you had one, that one jerk pulled a gun on him, the guy's well, so, yeah, also there yeah. was a guy who was uh, murdered this week with a uh, being hit over the head with a skateboard. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, it's not like a skateboard. It's not like a skateboard can't kill you. I mean, that damn thing's heavy. It's got those heavy wheels. I mean, there's all kinds of way that thing could mess and, you and, up. And that. by the way, this thing about taking a beating, uh, according to the Uniform Crime Statistics from the FBI. More people are killed by hands and feet every year that are killed by rifles of all types. And how many times have you seen a video of someone being stomped by by a crowd, stomped and kicked, and that and then the, and then that crowd syndrome kicks in, and they keep stomping and kicking until you're you're not with us anymore. Yeah, but yeah, it doesn't no, really know. doesn't even take a doesn't even take a crowd being beaten to death. No, is I a understand thing, that, but and it happens I'm, all what the I'm time. Saying is, uh, what I'm saying is you don't let yourself get in that position. You don't do that. You don't go, I give up, go ahead, beat me, because not not when blood's up like it was in this particular instance. Uh, it, it's it, There are going to be no half measures. I, I, I guess I, I am interested, though, in talking, um, just hypothetically at least, about the wisdom of, whenever you're in a volatile situation like that of openly carrying a firearm. Because it seems to me that I don't want, I mean, this is just my personal view. I don't want people to know that I'm a threat until I have to become a threat. And the trouble with walking around with a rifle on your shoulder is that a, it lets everybody know that you're armed. Now, for those who are going to be deterred by that, great, they'll be deterred by that. And they might not be deterred in another situation. But people who are attacking you when you do have a rifle on your arm or on your shoulder, well, you've put yourself now in a position where everybody knows you're armed. You've brought a gun into the situation. It's there. Now you kind of have to use it. And I just wonder, you know... There's a there's a different psychological effect if somebody comes after you and they think you're unarmed and then all of a sudden you magically produce a you know a Springfield XD and 45 caliber and point it at their face um, that tends to be a oh I have misinterpreted the situation kind of idea 
Um, but if you're already carrying the gun and it's already visible, the gun is already in play. So what's going to happen is going to happen as the night follows the day. And there's no way that you can de-escalate the situation by pulling a gun because it's already been escalated. They're already going after yeah, you that, and the gun is already there. And, and that's the point. The point is, if you're going to openly carry a gun, you are advertising the fact that you will use it. Uh, there are some, you know, people out there that will challenge that. And, and basically, what, what it comes down to is a game of chicken where they're trying to make you look like a fool because you don't won't pull the trigger and you being put in a position where you may have to. So, yeah, I, I get your point. I, I also, you know, going back to, to uh, Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse originally got that weapon to guard a, park, uh, guard a car lock. Uh, and if you read if you read about that, he, he was asked to, by a friend of a friend, you know, that type thing to watch out for this car lock because there have been 100 cars torched uh, the, the night before. So, yeah, in that situation, he wants people to know that they're, you know, they want people to know they're armed, but they're going to do it in a group. There are, you know, five or six of them there. When you're out running around a crowd with a rifle on in, in as fluid a situation as he was in. Um, you put yourself in great danger. Because you're, you're uh, already because got a mob the, mentality you're dealing with. So people are already yes. crazier than cats on a, uh, or uh, rats on a coffee. And, and you could see that. You could see that in this whole video. They kept coming after him, chasing him. They had, they had cut him from the herd, if you will. And, and, and so they were challenging him. And, uh, you know, to, to their detriment in this case. But you could see it going the other way. You could also, in your mind, see it go the other way. Yeah, but people are not generally thinking very well. And I think, look, he was. No. what started it off was he had a fire extinguisher and he was trying to put out a dumpster fire that they had started. And that, I believe, is what started the initial confrontation with Mr. Rosenbaum. Yeah, one of the, yeah, that's right. And, of course, he already has a rifle there. You're already in that situation. I always wonder, I mean, if it had been me uh, and I had been armed, I would have been armed concealed. And nobody would have known that I had a gun. And when Mr. Rosenbaum came and said, hey, if you don't stop trying to fight that fire, we'll kick the shit out of you. I wonder if he could have just walked away and just said, okay, uh, hey, it's not worth the trouble. I'll stop. And it wouldn't have prompted the 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 the, the, the chase <laughs> the, the, the the chase instinct uh, because you really weren't a threat and you're backing off. And, and now he feels like a big man because he threatened you off. Um, whereas if you have a gun and you're armed, he comes at you with a completely different attitude. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that, that's, that's a hard one to <clears throat> unravel there, but, uh, yeah. Because it seems to me that if people don't think you have a gun and they start chasing you and then you stop, turn, and you pull one and point it at them, they now realize that they have misapprehended the situation. They have not yeah, fully also- understood what has gone on. And now you have said, okay, now let's raise the stakes on this. You want to keep chasing me? Keep chasing me. Now let's see what happens. Uh, and the psychological effect of all of a sudden, oh, oh, there's a gun now is maybe more powerful than the psychological effect of, oh, well, there's already a gun there, but I don't think he's going to shoot me and I'm going to chase him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I get your point. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it I, really, I don't, dis- it's I don't really, disagree with it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really difficult, but I, I think just me personally, uh, I would rather be a concealed carrier than an open carrier, especially in a yeah, political situation. So. Because, I so. look, I, I've shot at people before. It's not something I want to do again. And not having a gun visible, well, but see, then there's the other thing. Maybe they're, they're emboldened because you don't have a gun and they decide they can beat the shit out of you and then they force you to pull the gun and shoot them anyway. I mean, there's there's there's, there's no real right answer. I just know for me, I would rather not have people know I'm a threat until I need to be a threat. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I, you know, <clears throat> again, going back to how this originally was set up for him, uh, I I don't know that he was ever, you know, obviously he was never supposed to be cut off and out there by himself. You know, this was a this was a uh, an effort by a group who were all armed, and of course, you know, that would probably have. Uh, uh, kept uh, most people away. Uh, the fact that he got out there by himself, and, that, and that's because he decided he wanted to play fireman too. Um, you know, th- I, I think that's what, what yeah, sets that, that scenario up. Yeah, that was a bad decision. Look, stay with your squad. Stay with your fire right, team. Right, right. Right, right, exactly. Don't don't wander off. <laughs> we we we've all had that lesson. Well, I say we all. Those of us who've been on the combat arms end of the military have had that lesson <clears> drilled <throat> into us many many times. There's no, Boy, no nothing kidding. nothing good can happen from you wandering off from your fire team. Yep, and uh, that's exactly the point. They uh, uh, there there is strength in numbers. And, uh, you know, if you don't, if you don't play that game, you're going to get in deep trouble. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, which he found out. Yeah. Well, yeah. Briefly. Yeah. What, what I thought was interesting is that everybody who got shot was a convicted felon. Yes. By the way, Gage Grosskreutz, who got shot in the arm and who, who lived, um, convicted felon who was armed with a pistol that he was not authorized to have. That's right. Be any gun charges on Gage Grosskreutz uh, coming up? I haven't heard of it. Uh, nor have I. But what was he doing with a gun at all? If we want to talk about people who shouldn't have guns, how about the guy that's a convicted felon who's wandering around with one, and he's a pro- prohibited possessor? But, you know, we'll, we'll allied past that, apparently. Apparently we allied past a lot of stuff uh, in that uh, prosecution. Yeah, well, not, mm-hmm. not far enough past it. Well, yeah. And, and you know, the, the other thing that was fortunate, of course, was the video. There was so much video, uh, even though that, that was problematic at some point. But, uh, you know, that video told the story. Uh, it, it was, you know, it, it wasn't he said, she said stuff. It, it wasn't just verbal testimony. You had graphic proof of what happened. And so it was hard to get past the fact that this kid had uh, had defended himself. Yeah, you know, when it, when the prosecution is reduced to who you're going to believe, me or your own lion eyes, right? Exactly. And and then the fact, you know, the, the other thing they had to determine was uh, the the, uh, the was he really in fear of his life? Well, I mean, look at the video. Would you have been? Yeah, and that was what that was the charge that was put on the jury by the judge is you've got to put, you know, this is not an opinion thing. You have got to decide whether 
in his eyes, he was uh, really honestly uh, uh, feeling that his uh, life was being threatened. And, and I don't think uh, they had any problem doing that. Yeah, well, there was enough pictures of people trying to kick the shit out of him um, yeah. that it made it <clears throat> quite obvious. Nobody else cared. The only people who cared that he had a gun were people who began to care after the fact because the people who were attacking him apparently didn't give a shit. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think I think part of that was his youth. Uh, the fact that he uh, was open carrying, he was young, they didn't believe, uh, you know, they didn't believe that he was really serious about this stuff. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't believe he had the courage to pull the trigger, I guess is a better way to say it. Yeah. And, you know, until you're in the situation, you never know yourself, really. Well, and here's another thing, and this is what gets me, is I know, I know uh, that his uh, uh, pulling the trigger didn't happen in a vacuum. I knew they all, I know they all knew it. And, and so that, says to me, why didn't the others back off at that point? You know, once he had shot the first guy and and it was evident that he'd shot him and other people had seen him, why did they go back after him again? Yeah, and, and kept chasing him. That was the thing. You know, Gage Grosskreutz yeah. had said the thing, well, I was not chasing the defendant. Okay, well, both of you started off at point A. <laughs> the defendant yeah. ran to point B, and somehow you magically appeared at point B with a gun. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just not believable. Yeah. There's, you know, if you were that afraid and then of course it becomes, well, I thought that he was an active shooter. Well, I mean, technically yeah. he was, but the only reason he was an active shooter because he was because he was being the victim of, of battery. And that's, and that's just a legal technical term to try and get yourself out of trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't following. I just happened to proceed in exactly the same direction to exactly the same location right behind him. Right. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I believe you. You, sure you, you seem yeah, like a we, real we trustworthy fellow, Gage. <laughs> All yeah, right, we well, it. look, let's, uh, let's uh, change subjects here because there's another thing that happened this week that I, that I did want to talk about. I think it's fascinating and instructive and surprising. Um a female tennis pro, Peng Shui, mm. earlier this week announced that she had been sexually assaulted by a high-ranking member of the Chinese Communist Party, or former uh, high-ranking member of the Chinese Communist Party, who, who she named. And then she disappeared. And nobody heard from her for two days. And people began asking where she was. And the Chinese government released a quote-unquote email that she sent to tell everybody, oh, I was never sexually assaulted, and I'm fine. I'm spending some time with my family, taking a, a little time off. And the Chinese government story as well, of course, everything's fine now, and uh, you can all stop asking your questions. And that's the last we've heard of her. And so, of course, now the... Uh, the uh, Women's Tennis Association did exactly the opposite of what the NBA would do because the head of the Women's Tennis Association said, basically, I don't care if it costs hundreds of millions of dollars, we're going to toss China out and we're not going to do business with them unless they can prove to us that Peng Shui is alive and unharmed. 
I can't imagine the yep. NBA making that same kind of statement. Oh my God! Do you think you know? LeBron would be crying. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. It's a yeah. It's a, it's an incredible, wonderful thing. I was I was tickled to death to see that. Uh, yeah, she you know just screw the money. Uh, you tell us where she is, and, and uh, why she's being silenced. And sure enough, boy. Uh, so Steve Simon, yeah, Steve Simon, who is the chairman of the WTA, yeah, um, said the statement released today by Chinese state media concerning Ping Shui only raises my concern about as to her safety and whereabouts. Ping Shui must be allowed to speak freely without coercion or intimidation from any source. He is not backing down to the Chicoms, and I love it, man. That's what you got to do. That's the way you stop this crap, and. Uh, the NBA, you know, the NBA has measured the uh, measured the the uh, money they make and made it much more important than the rights of uh, even their players. Uh, you know, yeah. and of course the Chinese know this, and so they may, they immediately make them pay. But I haven't heard of a thing that China has uh, said it's going to do to the uh, Women's Tennis Association. Uh, based on their questioning uh, over uh, this uh, tennis player from China. Well, it's women's tennis. And that's because, well, it's because they've said, screw you. You can't do anything. Yeah, well, also, I think the, you know, the public interest in women's tennis is probably much less than the public's interest in basketball. It's not as it big as, be. it's not it as big be. a sport. Um, which, by the way, makes the amount of money that they stand to lose from China an even braver act, because you know the NBA can afford to lose a billion. Let's face it, but women's tennis can't. Yeah, and they're taking a stand, and the NBA won't. Right, and the NBA is not the only one. Disney won't. You know, any number of other companies won't. Apple won't. Nike won't. Yeah, it's always it's always amusing when you see a company like Disney, who are I mean, talk about a company that's at the forefront of the entire social justice wokeness deal, and yet when it comes to uh, promotional uh, uh, posters for Star Wars, we're going to ensure that John Boyega is not on that poster because God forbid a promotional poster for a movie in China shows a black man on the cover. Yeah, can't have that. No, by the way, can we go back to that province where you have the Uyghurs and freaking uh, concentration camps? It's such a beautiful place. We'd like to use it. Yeah. And we'll thank you at the end of the film. Yeah, just a beautiful place to film where you're committing genocide. Yeah. And yeah, and the thing is that China is now beginning to, to expect this sort of obeisance. Um, yes. Because nobody is willing to... to strike back nobody's willing to argue with them everybody so wants the money you know it was i think it was um lenin who or stalin who said you know the west is going to sell us the rope with which with with which we'll hang them yeah yeah and 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 i've believed that to be true many times um but you know something else that that's there, there's so much going on that we could spend two hours talking about the problems that China has, you know. But, but on the other side of that, um, one of the things that is not going to break in their favor is this supply chain problem, because a lot of manufacturers now are looking at 
this problem and what it's cost them and saying, you know, we need to move that stuff closer to home. And that means moving out of China. So, and, and other parts of, of, of uh, Asia, but this, this supply chain thing is going gonna, is gonna to have real effect on uh, the Chinese economy. And I, you know, I'm going to be interested to see how that plays out. That's, that's something that's going to take a while. But at some point, China is, is uh, probably going to be a lot less mouthy and a lot less pushy if it wants to keep, uh, keep making the money it's been making. Well, so far, they haven't gotten enough pushback for them to be... Uh... Right. For for them Agreed. to be chastened. And certainly Xi is not chastened. Hell, uh, he's now president for life for all practical intents yeah. and purposes. <laughs> exactly. I love that. President for life. Yeah. Yeah. He's a damn good old economy. Yeah. For, for certain values of the word president. Sure. Yep. And, and, and so, yeah. So it's going to take some of this hit back. And you know, the best thing that could happen would be for us to encourage companies, especially American companies, to encourage them to cast their eyes south for their supply chain instead of casting their eyes uh, to, well, what is considered the east, although to us it's kind of the west. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. No, In other words, right. not Asia, <clears throat> South and Central America. That's right. You know, here they have uh, a lot of good workers in Chile. There is a, there is a lot of human capital in Central and South America that uh, we could activate and we could make those countries far richer than they are. Uh, a lot of their, would, only, yeah. a lot of their internal problems would be ameliorated by that's correct. Rising income in those countries and rising wealth, you know, equal, more or less equally distributed across the spectrum, uh, more jobs, more economic opportunity. Um, Central and South America are in many ways, um, and, and have been for years. I remember Jimmy Carter's uh, administration, uh, there was a study that was presented to them about the rich North and the poor South. Um, and the poor South includes Africa, obviously, but for America, it includes Central and South America. And we could avoid a lot of these supply chain problems by doing business there with governments that, while in many cases are authoritarian, are at least broadly across Central and South America are broadly democratic. Yes, I know that there are there there are exceptions. Hello, Venezuela. Um, <laughs> but but in general, they are far more aligned with our values and would be far more easy to work with, and certainly wouldn't become a world historical geopolitical threat um, if they were enriched in the same way that China seems bound and determined to become. Oh, and by the way, it might help our immigration. Too. Yeah, you, you, you think? Um, maybe <laughs> if you can get a job in El Salvador, um, you might not want to leave and head up through Guatemala and Mexico and try to make it to California or Texas. Um, you know, Increasing wealth in those countries would be a good thing for everybody involved. It would be a good thing for us. It would be a good thing for them. And... and Nobody is worried about the threat of a, you know, of regional superpower um, El Salvador or Honduras. That's true. Nope. And uh, by God, you know, we could uh, 
we could work the ports on the east and the west and uh, just be happy as little clams with our supply chain. To the extent that we needed ports rather than just railroads or yep. trucks. But, yep. But, yeah, it would open up the entire, well, you know, you have ports in Houston, you have ports in, in um, Mobile, you have ports in Florida. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of, of places that we could bring those goods into the United States. Indeed. And it would certainly make it harder for China to build up the Navy that they're going to need to build to invade Taiwan. Although, you know, who, who knows? They don't, they don't care about their soldiers. They don't really need a Navy. All they have to do is put enough boots on the ground, and I think they feel if they can do that, they'll win. But yeah, I don't think... They're probably it, right. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I think it'd take a lot of boots. Well, it would take a lot of boots, but it, it, the only thing that will deter that is action by the United States, Australia, and Japan, and I'm not so sure the U.S. is in this thing. Well, um, you know, a country that's building aircraft carriers that they're renaming the Hiryu and the Soryu uh, is a country that seems serious about defending itself. Well, they are. I, I know they are. They're doing a lot of things that uh, they they have you know, really issued in the past, but I'm talking about the United States because Oh yeah, we're not going to do it. Yeah, that's my point. Uh, Japan and Australia can't pull this off on their own. They have got to have the U.S. Uh, involved. Yeah, well, Japan has given it the old college try, though. And I thought we had cured Japan of the need for aircraft carriers in 1945, but it's amazing what American inaction, it's amazing how American inaction can cause history to begin repeating itself. Now, obviously, well, yeah. I'm not concerned about the, you know, the empire of Japan starting the greater co, greater Southeast Asia co-prosperity sphere again, but they've been so dependent on us for such a long time on their defense, maintaining relatively small military forces, that does not appear to be Japan's paradigm now. Japan is looking to build itself up into a regional power. And and yeah. why shouldn't they? What choice do they have? Because well, they can, you know, they what, can abjure war as, a, as an instrument of foreign policy all they want. That doesn't mean that everybody else in Asia will. Well, yeah. And, and the other thing, the other player that has kind of stepped up its game, which is kind of interesting, is South Korea. They, too, are talking about an aircraft carrier. So those guys know, they, may, they know China. <clears throat> and they know what, uh, what it means if China gets loose in that area. And uh, uh, they're a threat to all of them. Now, I frankly think China, at, at least for the next 10, 15 years, if they grab Taiwan, would, would you know, like the big fat spider that got a big bug, it would sit there for a long time and digest that. But I don't think that would stop them. I think they would be looking around for, for other things to do, and none of them good. Well, it wouldn't surprise me to see a resurgence of the old SETO um, treaty, not with the United States being involved, but basically an Asian version of SETO. Yeah, yeah. Just creating a collective but, security <clears throat> pact between Japan, Australia, um, uh, South Korea, obviously, the Philippines. Um, I can think of several nations that might be interested in joining such – because all of them have, at one time or another over the past decade, had to deal with obstreperous Chinese activities um, in or around their coastal waters. 
Yeah, and uh, I, I was reading recently the Philippines are are uh, getting uh, hit. Their fishermen are beginning hit by uh, water cannons from Chinese ships. Yep, uh, trying to drive them off. So yeah, they're, they they are they're not happy. I know that Japan, of course, knows what uh, China feels about them. <laughs> so the trouble and, is, uh, I, I, but, I would have thought in the 1930s that we would have learned the time to stand up to these sort of international bullies, and that's what China is, by the way. Um, the time to stand up to them is before they can do anything really bad. Um, we didn't decide to stand up to Adolf Hitler until, well, in the United States, 1941. But nobody in Europe stood up to him until September 1st, 1939. Well, it, it's too late now. Now there's no way that we can easily stop this guy the way we could have stopped him when he marched into the Saar or the Ruhr in 1935. We could, have, we could have deposed well, that fellow then, but nobody had the guts to do it. And nobody has the guts to do it now to China. And in in Nazi Germany terms, China is right now somewhere around 1935 to 1937. Yeah, I'd say they're actually further than that. And, and, and one of the reasons they're further than that is we decided we're going to go over there and do business with them. Yeah, they certainly have money. Yeah, and so we have basically funded, you know, their rise, their military, you name it. Um, not uh, to me, not smart. I understand the business side of it, uh, but the security side and the, and the strategic side, yes, you know, it, we're right back to being hung with our own rope. Well, the thing is, the security side made sense in the 1980s and 1970s, really which was, if we can force them to liberalize their economy, then ultimately that will force a political liberalization. Because Yeah, know, that the was the gamble. Get... And we thought that was happening with Deng. You know, when Deng had, had the reins, I mean, he was, he was sort of the Gorbachev of China. Yeah. Uh, he's, he was much more liberal uh, than uh, the, uh, you know, what, what they'd had in the past. And he understood uh, the, the the power of economics and uh, the the liberalization of, the, of economics, but as soon as this guy's eye showed up, we should have gone. Hey, we're done. But you can't at that point. You're you're committed. You're you know your stuff's there. Yeah, the trouble and, with and the so trouble with Xi is that was the perfect trap. The trouble with Xi is he wants to follow Deng's economic policies, but not his political policies but, but because that's right. Deng he wanted wants, to keep China wants, relatively isolated and not an active country on the world stage. Um, which, by the way, well, is think... China's historical part. Xi has this 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 national, what we're calling here, I guess now, national greatness conservatism um, that makes him want to make China bestride the world stage like a colossus. And right. that's not but good. Dang. Deng wanted basically to liberalize everything. I mean, he, to include the politics. Uh, but, he, you know, he met a lot of resistance, obviously, and uh, it was never able to get that, that rolling. The economic side, he was able to get rolling. Uh, but it ended up being the perfect trap for us uh, when he was, you know, when his successor came on board. Right, because once we and decided to get in there, and to yeah. start sending our supply chain over there, that sort of became the easy and default answer. And the Chinese kept making it easier and easier to transfer yeah. our supply chains over there. 
And so we kind of so fell into that trap. So this may be the silver lining to COVID. You never know. Uh, you know, the fact that <clears throat> those are, those supply chains are now being reassessed, even though, you know, we talked about, Hey, you know, they may call our drugs. What happens if, what happens if, what happens if, well, we found out what happens if, you know, we, we, we can't get chips. We can't get this. We can't get that. Uh, um, so this reassessment and, and this moving of assets from China back here may in the long run, not exactly what that long run years wise might be, be a good thing, a great thing. Um, the trouble so is the amount of time it, it'll take to unwind it, though, Bruce. I mean, it took us. Well, it will. It took no, us 30 years to get that. into this position. <clears throat> now it's going to take us another 30 years to get back out of it. Yeah. And that may and that may be what it takes. Yeah. But uh, at some point. And the other side of that, too, is China is no longer the cheapest place to do business anymore. You know, China, China's uh, people have uh, uh, evolved a bit. They have. Uh, they have economic demands and economic desires that have to be filled now. And, and it's not as cheap to, to, to manufacture there now. Uh, so that's another thing that's, that's going to change the equation there, but still um, right now. And, and that's, and that's one of the reasons the more I think about it, the more I think, gee, if they're going to do Taiwan, they're going to probably have to do it fairly soon, you know, next five years. Uh, yeah. Because or, they, this may be the high watermark of their exactly, international power. Exactly. Right. You're exactly right. Yeah. So as Jesus said, whatsoever thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh, well in 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 uh, international terms, that is quickly five years. Yeah. And the only problem with them then is they'll have to deal with the Republican administration because you know this boy. Yeah. Um, if if I was doing, I, I was just looking at at Biden's. Uh, Biden's approval ratings, which continue to drop. Um, it'll be yeah. interesting. That we, we haven't hit the bottom yet. We're down another point this week. So um, I think the strategy of having um, uh, higher inflation uh, and you know, higher gas and food prices to get everybody's mind off of Afghanistan may turn out not to have been the, the, the best practice to pursue. I mean, clearly, people aren't talking about Afghanistan. So in that sense, it's worked. Um, and there are still hundreds of Americans in Afghanistan, in case anyone has forgotten. Yes, there are. Um, but, uh, boy, people you know, people may not care too much about Afghanistan. But, boy, uh, when you start looking around like we have out here and seeing $5.50 per gallon gasoline in a state where you have to commute 40 minutes every day, um, that gets awfully expensive awfully fast and what I've been, I can imagine and what I've been fascinated by and of course it's, it's going up in you know similarly in in other states as well although California it will always be more expensive because we've got like you know an outrageous amount of taxes on each gallon of gas um, but that aside uh, what I've found fascinating is is the it's do you remember back in 1977 it was 77 or 78 um, Danny Aykroyd did a cold open for uh, Saturday Night Live as Jimmy Carter. And um, he did two of them, two weeks in a row, one of which he decided to tell people to burn 10% of their money uh, to help fight inflation. And the second week he had another plan and he said, I'd like us to look at inflation in a t new and totally different way. Inflation is our friend. <laughs> and, yes, I do remember. 
And that was really funny in 1977. It's a lot less funny when administration officials and news outlets in 2021 seriously advance the proposition that, oh, this inflation is a good thing. Um, and we've had, you know, administration officials and, and you know, Jim Pisaki talking about, well, you know, uh, it's only the rich people who are concerned about inflation. Oh, my God, they're the last people who are in- concerned about inflation. That's right. They own all of their value in assets whose value will increase with inflation. It's the poor people who are living day-to-day in cash that just get slammed with inflation. Now, sure, if you got a home mortgage, if inflation gets bad enough, you can pay off your house for the cost of a really nice hat. But um, for everything else, for the food that you have to eat every week, and food and clothing and things like that are a huge portion of the budget of the working poor just to, to live from day to day. I mean, forget housing. That's super expensive as well. But just being able to live becomes horrifically expensive when you have no assets whose value appreciates that you can liquidate if needed to get yourself some immediate ready cash. When all the cash you have is the cash you have, inflation is a killer. You're exactly right. And I'm I'm afraid we're going to find that out. Or a lot of people are going to find it out. No, there's there's uh, a, there's a lot of people who don't remember 1979. Can't imagine that. Yeah, no, there are a lot of people that don't remember a lot of things that they're going to get to go through. Uh, it seems like we, you know, we, we have about a 30 or 40 year cycle. We go through this crap again, and uh, everyone's surprised. And history is a bitch, you know. It'll teach you what to what you can uh, avoid if you take certain steps, but we don't teach history anymore. No, we don't. Not only do not teach it, we, we don't even have people whose whose memories go past the last presidential administration who can remember yes, how awful the late seventies and the early eighties are. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Miracle with uh, uh, Kurt Russell. Uh, it's the the nineteen eighty Miracle on Ice hockey team, and of course it starts off in nineteen seventy eight while they're starting to build the team up and and whatnot. And one of the excellent things that this movie does is. And it doesn't happen in the foreground. It's just happening sort of in the atmosphere of the movie. Jimmy Carter talking about austerity. Little clips of of, of all the horrible the gas lines. Um, all this kind of stuff going on in the background. And, you know, for those of us who were alive back then, it made me you know, think once again, wow, that was a really unpleasant time. Yes, it was. It was. And, and you know, I remember, I think I bought my first house back, which was... You know, I, I, I bought it with a VA loan and um, I got 10% interest and people were going, you lucky dog. Yeah, no kidding. How did you get a 10% loan? <laughs> yeah, because, because mortgage loans were running from, you know, during that time, it varied quite a lot, especially near the end, but um, 30 year mortgage rates got up to like 18% at one point. Yes. Yes. I was considered to be one lucky human being. Yeah, because I got a 10% VA loan. Yeah, well, we may be heading back in that direction now because, you know, we're not hearing from the people at the Fed. Uh, this is just mm-hmm. temporary inflation and it'll all blow over. Yeah. See, I'm, I keep waiting for them to start tightening the interest rates and they don't. And I'm going, oh, Lord. Because when they're, they're going to have to do it, uh, it's going to hurt. It's going to be 1981 and 1982. 
That's yep. exactly what it's going to be. It's going to take somebody like Paul Volcker to come in and say, you know, we can't have, you know, a, a federal funds rate of 0.75% or 0.5%. We, we, we can't do it. And I think one of the things that's keeping them from doing that is look at what the cost for debt service for the U.S. government will turn into if the U.S. Treasury, the 10-year just goes back up to 6%. I mean, it's going to add um, eight or $900 billion to just debt service every year. We're going to end up paying a trillion just in debt service. We can't afford that. That's right. You know, and and, and that's, this this infrastructure bill and build back better and all of that stuff, you're not helping. No, and that's the thing. That's the thing that people don't understand is they're not helping at all. Well, the, you know, the trouble is, is that ever since Ronald Reagan, who campaigned, by the way, that he was shocked, shocked that the national debt had gotten to one trillion dollars, and then proceeded to add three trillion dollars to the national debt over eight years, right? Um. We've been hearing ever since the 1980s. This is a, this is the path straight to hell. It, it it'll all end in tears, and it's never ended in tears. Not yet. But things that can't go on forever don't. Don't. <laughs> yeah, and that's one that can't go on forever. Yep. At some point, you are so deep in debt that you have no way of paying it off, and. You know, I, I, I honestly am, am surprised because I remember in 2009, I was, we were talking about this, thinking we are at the breaking point. Of course, that was at the time when Italy and Spain and um, Ireland were having horrible uh, monetary problems as well. I mean, it looked like the whole thing was creaking to an end then. And yet somehow we managed to keep pulling it out. And that's the trouble with monetary problems. Monetary systems work really great right up until the minute that they don't. And then when they right. don't, it goes it goes to hell in a handbasket and it goes there fast. And that's, uh, yeah. So so you, you keep holding your breath, you keep waiting. And, and you know, it's like a lot of things you, you say, okay, I, it just seems like we can't go any further yet. We do. And then at, at some point, uh, we're gonna we're gonna watch it all collapse, and that's you know I I think we're a lot closer to that point now because confidence in the dollar, confidence in the United States, confidence in a lot of things that uh, twenty years ago uh, you'd have never even thought about, um, it's just not there. But and I th- and I I can see that change. Uh, I I think the, the the one fear though that everybody has, the one thing that keeps the system creaking along, despite the fact that we're about to add another. Well, the Senate isn't going to do it, so we're not going to add four trillion to it. But we are going to add two trillion to it. Um, uh, the only thing that's keeping it along is just the sheer unadulterated terror of what a post-dollar world economy looks like. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And so everybody, and I mean literally everybody—business, government, Main Street, Wall Street—everybody has a vested interest in trying to keep this thing going on for as long as they can. I'm, but I mean, at some point, it, it will be taken out of out of everybody's hands. At some point, what's yeah. going to happen will happen, and there won't be any way to forestall it. And you have no way of knowing what that'll be. And every chance that we've had to pull back from the brink of this thing. Every single chance we have ignored. The only time that we have done anything approaching trying to fix this problem 
was during the Clinton administration, the, the second Clinton administration, when for a couple of years we ran a balanced budget. Yeah. More or less. And other than that, we've just let this thing run away. It can't run away forever. No, it can't. And, you know, I was I was hoping that when this happened that I would be in my 30s, right? <laughs> no. Not now, because I have no way of recovering from the whole thing coming apart if it falls apart now. Well, yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I'm to the point in my life where I'm going, God, just hang on a few more years. <laughs> yeah, just just to the point I shuffle off this mortal coil, and then... Yeah, that's right. And they have to go for it. <laughs> and, yeah, and then it, it no longer becomes my problem. That's, That's right. It becomes a you problem, not a me problem. That's right. Uh, well, Bruce, um, I guess we're going to call it quits for the rest of the year, right? We're going to take yes, a, a holiday gonna, hiatus. We're doing holiday things, yep. All right, well, you have a great holiday, Bruce, and I will look forward to getting back together with you after the first of the year. Yep, you take care, Dale. So long. You've been listening to Observations, a Q&O podcast for Friday, the 19th of November, 2021. As you just heard, we are about to take a extended holiday hiatus. Both Bruce and Michael are uh, going to be involved in some holiday uh, celebrations, I suppose, during the next uh, four or five weeks. And so we are not going to be able to come back and do another podcast until the first of the year. So I wish you and your family, on behalf of Michael and Bruce, a great holiday season. We'll look forward to reconnecting after the new year. Until then, have a great Thanksgiving, a great Christmas, and a great New Year's, everybody. So long. So long.